Good morning and good evening and good afternoon, wherever you may be on this rotating globe. Merry Christmas, one and all. We have a present for everyone on planet Earth. Actually, we got a couple. But the one we're going to talk about tonight is we are in contact with someone on this Christmas weekend, this Enterprise Mission Christmas weekend that we set up so many weeks ago as an effort to reach out and broadcast to a potential interstellar AI, a probe, a robot, a bracewell device, something akin maybe to my friend Arthur C. Clarke's Rama. Whatever it may be, it came through the solar system over four years ago, four years and a couple of months, and it changed dramatically a whole bunch of things. And it occurred to me tonight, as I was putting this together with the help of an awful lot of people that I want to mention uh, as we go through the evening, that um, something else happened right after Amuamua appeared. And, uh, you know, as, as we go through the morning, I will go into some of these details. Welcome, one and all. I hope you had a wonderful Christmas. I hope you are, you know, not too stuffed with turkey and stuffing and all the other goodies. And I hope you are with your families. I hope you are listening in front of some wonderful fire somewhere. Um, that's one of the reasons why we don't have Kintia with us tonight, because she is up country with her family, and she so, so deserves it. You know, back when we were kind of thinking about doing this, um, um, I, I talked with her, and she said, you're, you're kidding, you're going to do a live show on Christmas? And I said, well, yeah, because, you know, I remember way back when, when Robin and I were together, and we would... Uh, be wrapping things uh, on the dining room table, and uh, I would take time out because uh, George or before him Art would call, and we would talk to the audience on Christmas Eve, kind of like um, an extended family. Well, Robin isn't here anymore, so you guys, you are the extended family, and there's a lot of people who are not enjoying family, and they're all alone, and uh, I want you to know that we're thinking of you. And we're going to bring you extraordinary tidings. There is something so, so wondrous, so astonishing, so absolutely shatteringly amazing going on in a positive sense. I mean, the world, if you look at the news, you can get very, very, very depressed. Well, since December 4th, since we began this experiment, we have been getting return answers. Now, as we're going to talk about in detail tonight, the answers, um, and by the way, tomorrow night as well, because part two of this very complex interchange of information, which is going on with someone out there, is too much to tackle in one night. So I have uh, lined up some very interesting, diverse perspectives on what's going on and who might be responding and what the meaning of what we're getting uh, ultimately signifies and all that good stuff and uh we have a very full house tonight so i should probably get along with it so anyway uh on a final note yes uh you are not forgotten we are here and we are live and we have some amazing things to talk about because someone is sending us very 
good news. And I will explain over the next three hours exactly what I mean by that with the help of a very interesting panoply of guests and friends and colleagues. And again, more of the extended other side of Midnight Family on this Christmas night of 2021. The first bit of good news, if you are new to the show and you don't know quite how it works, we have a section called Radio with Pictures. Not exactly video most of the time, but images, kind of like snapshots of things we talk about and references so that when you uh, finish listening to the show and if you're a member of Club 19.5, you can go back and at your leisure plumb the depths of these links, these images, these videos, these papers, whatever is up there. And you can kind of fill out, as uh, Paul Harvey would say, the rest of the story. Item number one, what you want to do is you want to go to the other side of midnight.com, click on tonight's banner, which says, uh, by the way, this is a an animated banner created by John Womack, who was one of our guests tonight. A really, you know, John, you really outdid yourself. Um, it's titled The Oumuamua Transmissions, Calling Occupants of Interplanetary Craft. And some of you may know uh, where I stole that title from and others may not but you're going to <laughs> anyway you click on that banner that will take you to the guest page and right under the guest page you will see fast links to items you want to click on my name as you can see there we have Richard Maria John and David and uh, you're going to click on my name that takes you down to my section of radio with pictures under that radio with pictures banner uh, the first item, as we have done now for a couple, three months, is La Palma. And we've been keeping everyone abreast on La Palma, giving out this link so you can put it on your phone. If you're along the coast, you wanted to kind of be aware if something really bizarre was happening, like major eruptions or major earthquake, because uh, the geophysical models that were published back in 2001 said that there was a significant, not not huge, but significant chance that under the right conditions, about half the island could slide into the Atlantic, causing a mega tsunami. And that, as Carl used to say, would not be good for beagles or begonias. Well, the good news tonight, on this Christmas night of 2021, the authorities on La Palma have broadcast the all-clear. The eruption of La Palma in the Canary Islands has officially ended. And you want to click on that link and read all the details. But as of a few days ago, and again, it was re-emphasized re, uh, uh, this evening, the La Palma eruptions, the longest in the recorded history of the La Palma volcano, are over. And that is very intriguing for a whole bunch of reasons. Now... Item number two, this was so appropriate. It, there, it turns out that the Spanish uh, military has been conducting rescue efforts around the island to try to round up and feed uh, Spain's civil guard, has been rounding up and feeding the literally hundreds, if not thousands of cats, which have been made homeless by people fleeing and by the eruptions and the lava and the steam and the ash and all that stuff. And if you click on item number two, 
you will see a really adorable video having to do with cats. Now, for those of you who've been following our research for many, many years, you know that somehow, as part of our own ancient history, certainly on this planet, but apparently also on the planet Mars, cats, felines, play a very significant role. So again, this is one of those coincidences, uh, quinky dinkies, as a friend of, of Kinthea's used to say, that I just could not resist because, uh, I mean, who can resist a good cat story on the internet? So they are now trying to find the owners, the families of these cats and reunite them. And uh, now that the volcano apparently has has ceased its uh, tumultuous activity, that should be a lot a lot easier. Well, I said earlier that we have two Christmas presents to give you tonight. The first of which, of course, from our perspective, is this extraordinary two-way communication we're engaging in with someone out there. And although we're directing our attentions to Amuamua, um, my feeling over the last several weeks since we started this on the 4th of December is that we're getting answers from some kind of an interstellar or intergalactic or maybe even interdimensional party line. Because even when we're not transmitting on the particular frequencies that we have chosen, 144.1 and 432 megahertz, and we will explain, again, for those who have just joined us, the significance of those two specific frequencies, because nothing about this has been left to chance. Um, in addition to our Christmas present, which is decoding some of what we're getting, and boy, when you hear what we're getting, it's, it's an extraordinary gift from somewhere, some when, somehow, someone. The second gift comes from NASA and the European Space Agency, because in the wee hours of this morning, it was 5.20 a.m. here, and there I am sitting, you know, bleary-eyed, looking at the big screen. NASA was able to finally, after a quarter of a century and something like $10 billion, before you freak out about the money, remember, uh, you know, that's a chicken feed compared to, you know, the price of, let's say, an F-35. But $10 billion has bought us the most extraordinary space telescope scientific instrument probably in the modern history of humankind and this morning at 5:20 a.m mountain time it was successfully launched from french guiana and is now moving at something like 20,000 miles per hour it'll take about a month to get there but it's moving to a point actually a region of space behind the earth away from the sun by about a million miles and there it will be parked. How do you park something in empty space? Well, you set up a gravitational set of interactions so that the forces kind of balance. And so the Webb telescope, this extraordinarily, incredibly complex piece of optical miracle engineering, which, as I said, has been worked on for about a quarter of a century with several stops and starts and false oh, we're going to launch it next year, that kind of thing. Because the problems in creating this jewel were well nigh 
impossible even by 21st century space engineering and manufacturing technologies. But they went and did it, and we're going to see in the next few weeks, uh, NASA's going to have all kinds of updates, and I will report you know, weekly as we go through this, the progress in unfolding the multi-layered solar shield, which will prevent sunlight, infrared radiation from heating the telescope, and it will be cooled down on top of this uh, uh, basically tennis court-sized multiple-layer mylar blanket, although I think maybe it's Kevlar, um, down to almost absolute zero. Now, you might ask, I did, why the heck do we have to build a telescope that's got a 21-foot-wide mirror? I mean, that's enormous. That's bigger than my living room. Why a telescope that's got a mirror, by the way, clad in gold, a few um, atoms thick, and why do you have to cool it down, way, way down to almost absolute zero? Well, the answer is that unlike Hubble, the Webb telescope, the James Webb telescope, named for the most brilliantly successful NASA administrator in history, the guy picked by Kennedy that basically got us to the moon in record time and achieved all kinds of astonishing things, including confirming with the Apollo data that there are ancient, extraordinary uh, artificial structures all over the moon, up to and including a dome surrounding the whole damn place. And you're going to hear more about that as we go through some of the new data from our moon bounce experiments with the uh, antenna that we have borrowed there in northern Arizona. We're going to be talking about using the moon bounce echoes to actually, by means of radar, with our own antenna system and half million watt effective transmitter, we're going to be able to probe by means of a citizen science radar the actual dimensions and geometric structure and reflective properties of this amazing lunar dome. Well, as part of that set of experiments, we did, as we did with the Muamua on the 4th, on the 11th, we sent a test transmission prior to swinging into full gear to the moon. And we got back some really extraordinary things. So again, the question is, why are we cooling this, this Webb telescope, which has nothing to do with the moon, and is going out into a point, actually a halo orbit, uh, behind the Earth by about a million miles, why do we have to cool it so incredibly chill, cold, frigid, near absolute zero? Because, unlike Hubble, it is a telescope designed to look in the infrared, in the area of the electromagnetic spectrum which heat radiation predominates. And why do we do that? Because part of the mission of the Webb Telescope is to look way back in time to something like 13.7 billion years ago when the very universe that we've now put together as observations and theoretical models and lots of equations and tons of speculation was literally forming. So the Webb telescope with its infrared capabilities 
is going to be looking at the frontier where, because of the expansion of the universe, close to the speed of light at that observable boundary, visible light from stars, galaxies, nuclear interactions, etc., etc., is shifted by the redshift from the visible that Hubble could look at way down into the infrared. So if you want to look at those first moments in time after the Big Bang, you need to look in the infrared because that's where the signal has been downshifted, the electromagnetic radiation from forming galaxies and supergiant stars and the most incredible enigma of all, where did all those huge black holes sitting in the center of every galaxy that we have tabulated now, where do they come from? Do the galaxies come first, meaning an assemblage, a swirling orbiting assemblage of stars? Or do the black holes come first? And if that's true, where do they come from? These are just a few of the myriad of questions that Webb is going to finally in the next six months, because that's how long it takes them to set everything up and check it out and make sure that nothing is wrong. Six months, and then we will begin to get some extraordinary answers. So that's item number three, the launch this morning from French Guiana of Webb. Now, item number four, this is the actual audio that uh, Jimmy Blanchett sent me um, a few hours ago. This is our transmission. This is what it actually sounds like if you were listening on a muamua or somewhere in the solar system in the beam of our half-million-watt radio transmission. This is the message we are sending, not just to Oumuamua, but ultimately someday to the stars, because it just keeps on going and going and going. And if there is this interstellar or interdimensional party line, judging by the responses we have gotten, what you're hearing in these frequencies, these coded hyperdimensional numbers, these basic constants, these immutable geometric properties of ancient sites all over the world. What you hear in those coded transmissions are questions and statements in our own hyperdimensional mathematical language that we have sent out into the dark starting on December 4th. We've added some complexity. We've added some imaging. We even added, as you're going to hear, some specific music coded in these hyperdimensional terms. And what we have gotten back from the dark, almost instantly, which immediately throws into the ash can that we're dealing with communication, which is limited to the speed of light, what we got back is, in fact, what you're going to hear momentarily again. Because we're getting answers to the very frequency questions that we are posing. 
What I'd like to do now is to introduce our panel, and in no particular order, because that would be too much <laughs> to remember on a night like tonight. Again, this is such an extraordinary Christmas gift that we're actually getting answers to these amazing fundamental queries that we're sending in this hyperdimensional code. Um, what I want to do is introduce, in no particular order, uh, we have uh, Maria Wheatley with us, and you will hear in a couple of minutes why she's joined us. Maria is a second-generation dowser who was taught by European master dowsers, her late father, and Chinese geomants. She's a leading authority on geodetic earth energies, ley lines, and stone circles. She's an accomplished author of many books on sacred sites and dowsing, and you can read the rest of her biography there on the other side of midnight. Jonathan Womack is back with us. Now, John has many, you know, uh, arrows in his quiver, uh, not the least of which is that he has personal experience with other dimensions since he's been leaving his body um, since the fall of uh, 1965 and um, has a rather remarkable uh, database on out-of-body experiences. But in the 3D reality, he also is a really um, interesting musician, um, and he has now got involved himself in computer processing and animations and graphical displays. So what I asked John to do is to kind of translate some of the signals we've been getting back into a very visual form, and when we uh, get to John, he's going to show you some pretty amazing things that we have begun, I want to emphasize, just begun to decode from the signals we are getting. We also have with us uh, David Sarita. Now, David and I are kind of like kindred spirits because, you know, our language uh, between us is kind of math. A lot of people, their eyes glaze over when you bring up mathematics. Uh, and its companion geometry. But what what happens is that when we send out these codes, the answers we are getting are A, in mathematical form, to the extent we're able to translate this cornucopia of amazing stuff that we've been recording. I mean, in the last several days, I probably recorded several uh, gigabytes, almost 10 gigabytes of return messages in the form of these wave packets of dots and dashes that are not Morse code. It's like the codes have codes within codes within codes, and we've only penetrated probably to the first level of the ultimate complexity that there is to be decoded. Well, I'm going to be unabashed tonight about asking for some additional help to help us do this, which is, could be in the form of funding, we have a donate button on the Enterprise uh, website on the other side of midnight, right there prominently in the page. We could use uh, donations in kind, sophisticated software, algorithms that can take these waveforms and give us visual graphs and do statistical analysis and comparisons, for instance, between the, the sounds and signals I'm recording here and the sounds and signals that David is recording, you know, 1,500 miles away, and the sounds and signals that um, uh, Jimmy Blanchett is recording uh, 500 miles to the west of me, uh, et cetera, et cetera. So we have a multi-point listening uh, array, and what we'd like to do is to 
convolve all these separate recordings into a comparison. And you can't do it by eye. You can't do it by, you know, manual labor. It's got to be done by the right computer algorithms. Well, we don't have those at the moment. But somewhere out there on a planet that's listening to us tonight, we're in something like 190 plus countries, there does exist expertise and there does exist the software to take these signals and absolutely give us in return what they're trying to say at whatever level of complexity the signals are being sent and the images and data are being encoded. So we need some help. David is a citizen scientist born in Edmonton, Alberta in 1961. Um, He has been involved in uh, ancient studies, ancient uh, artifacts, ancient sacred sites for literally decades. He has produced and scored music for meditation, frequencies for tuning consciousness. He and his late wife uh, have had a meditation practice and consciousness course on audio and video called Quantum Regenesis. Um, he has hung around with numbers, these specific hyperdimensional frequencies, for many, many years, um, having an education in everything from world religions to meditation to philosophy to science, including uh, fringe science, physics, photography, screenwriting, art, film, music, consciousness, UFOs, crop circles, history, sacred sites, transpersonal psychology. And I could go on for a while, and I won't. I don't want to bore you. You can go and read the whole thing there on the Enterprise uh, Mission Other Side of Midnight website. And last but not least, Michael Hill is joining us. Michael is an award-winning musician, a filmographer, and a UFO experiencer who incorporates cosmic harmonic frequencies, hyperdimensional frequencies, folks, into his music gained from communication with those not from here. I love that line, those not from here. He speaks on indigenous connections with star beings and the wisdom gained from those communications. He also has discussed and experienced time, numbers, and the literal physics of creation. And you can read his entire bio on the other side of midnight. And last but not least, we are joined by Ron Gerbron, who was our resident generalist. Um, And Ron likes to listen for a major part of the show, and then he comes up with either pithy questions or even more pithy observations. So uh, at any moment, Ron might break in with a really important question that I and other folks tonight have not thought of. So without further ado, welcome one and all to the other side of midnight to our Christmas Muamua weekend. Let's see, where should we begin? Um... I think to get the ball rolling, I want to go to Michael Hill. Michael, you're kind of responsible for this because you're one of the folks that introduced me to the wondrousness of 432. So why don't you tell folks what you did in terms of the messages we are sending and how uh, out there we have really gotten because of knowing you? Oh, well, first of all, thank you and Merry Christmas. Uh well, 432 is such an important uh, topic, and it's what I was guided to by those who are not from here. And for one thing, they started using crop circles as kind of like a chalkboard 
in uh, the classroom. But um, that led to actually uh, meeting you and you aligning for a NASA scientist to look into my work. And um, what it was was cymatic images. Um, You're going to have to explain cymatics, please. Alrighty, we can. Um, are we at the top of a break here, or are uh, we good? Let yes, me go check. Okay, well, see, people mm-hmm. need to look at things, because I'm not looking at them very closely. <laughs> okay, so thank you, Michael. Come thank on you. it, Richard. <laughs> super, super. Nice to have a backstop. Um, I have been trying to pick music for tonight to do this, and I'm telling you, when I thought of what we're talking about and the idea of the Christmas star and what we're hearing, through these transmissions, there was only one possibility that was not at all inappropriate. Welcome to a swift journey back in time. Do you hear what I hear? hear? Said the night wind to the little land. Do you see what I see? Do you see what I see? Way up in the sky, little land. Do you see what I see? Do you see what I see? A star, a star, dancing in the night with a tail as big as a kite. Said the little lamb to the shepherd boy Do you hear what I hear? Do you hear what I hear? Ringing through the sky, shepherd boy Do you hear what I hear? Do you hear what I hear? A song, a song The only reason they've done that is because they know and have openly admitted that it's unenforceable. So if they kept everyone locked down over Christmas, they know that everyone's going to ignore it because you're going to go and see your family at Christmas. Of course you are. And they know that you've got... 65 million people in the UK you can't you can't please 65 million people going to each other's houses for Christmas you can't do it there's not enough police officers so what they've done to try and keep some kind of you know appearance of power is give us those days so it's like I know you're going around each other's houses but we let you do it because that's better than keeping us locked down us all doing it anyway and them openly showing their weakness which which they have they can't enforce it and and the police chief, chief constables, has said as much that it's unenforceable. And so that's what I think people need to realise is that all these music venues could open, all these theatres could open, all these restaurants could open, all these bars could open, as long as they all opened. Because then it's unenforceable. Hello everyone, my name's Gareth Ike. It's been a pleasure to talk on the other side of the news. Fantastic conversation with Kinthea, Timothy, and Anetta. And I wish you all the best with a fantastic podcast. Cross my aching arms. Body language clear. Breathe 
Tonight on this Christmas night of 2021, we're discussing what we have heard, an answer from the dark, an answer from someone who's responding to our coded hyperdimensional messages, who's responding in kind. Who are they? Where are they? And what are they saying? So, Michael, um, a segue of music to music. What did you do to contribute to our interplanetary messages to Oumuamua last night, tonight, and tomorrow night? Well, the one thing was uh, we were getting into cymatics, which is the new science of making the invisible visible for the first time that they can actually pump frequency through water now. But in the past, they would use a big metal plate and put sand on it and they'd have a bow. And you could once you bowed it and you got this tone, you could watch the sand dance and geometry would form. And it wasn't random. Every time specific frequencies were hit, specific geometry would happen. Well, that's now evolved to the point that they have a big vat of water that is suspended in a tripod and they can pump frequency through it. And um, so I started to be guided into the importance of 432 hertz. So I had recorded a uh, just my A note in my recording studio, but meticulously tuned properly to 432 hertz. 
and I sent that to the scientists and I got back a uh, uh, 4K image of what was created and it pretty much flipped out the scientists. They said, we've used this technology to image everything known to man, every frequency, uh, baby noises, you know, dolphin noises. They're becoming famous for developing a language to speak with dolphins. But um, they said, we've never seen the kind of complexity or dimensionality of anything we've ever imaged, but we never imaged our electric rock guitar ramp. <laughs> Interestingly enough, they said that they believe it was actually the tubes that give you that crunch and what it's doing to the frequency that cre created this crazy dimensional image. But uh, that is one of the things um, that Jimmy was able to digitize and put into the transmission is that actual cymatic image. And because of your work and getting me aligned with a NASA scientist, they proved that uh, in particular, I had encased it into quartz crystal glass that had a copper wrap. And they found that um, it's revitalizing dead municipal tap water back into like spring water energetics and a uh, signature so right there you know i asked the scientists i said well wait a minute because i got all the data to back this up uh they use gdv photography which is the ability to record photonic light energy kind of like carrying photography but this is even a little bit more specialized into looking at the photonic light level of water and uh, it's almost dead, you know. We've almost killed our drinking water if it's municipal tap water by chlorine and by fluoride and ma making it take right turns and whatnot. And it just looked like a little tiny pinprick of light. And then after they just set that same exact water on a disc, um, it just exploded with energy. It looks like a supernova went off inside the water droplet. So I asked the scientists, I said, well, wait a minute. If... There was no energy, but now there's energy. That's some form of unlimited free energy, you know. And <laughs> Where's the energy so, coming from? Exactly. I was like, wait a minute. So I asked her, I said, is this coming from our sun? Is it coming from our planets, our planets, electromagnetic fields, you know, tectonic plates? And she said, no, it's coming from another dimension. That really toasted my noodle, you know, because I never had to ask myself, Richard, uh, what's it mean to be drinking water that has energy from another dimension in it? But, um, it's you know, I think it's leading us to a new form of energy propulsion. And I think it's kind of like what Tesla was saying, that you can align yourself with galactic source energy um, by aligning yourself with very specific frequencies. So that's the other thing that I uh, contributed was um, the octaves of A are very important in all of this when you're tuned properly. Because, uh, you know, it was Pythagoras who figured out, you know, it was very easy. If you want to find the, the accurate uh, hertz of any frequency, just because you got your middle A note on your piano tuned properly to 432, well, there's still a lower A note than a lower A note. All you do is divide by two, simple. So 432 lower octave is 216, because 216 and 216 is 432. And then uh, 108, and then 54, and then 27. But if you go higher, it's uh, 864. And why this is even important is... Um, 
you know, it was you, Richard, who um, I didn't know. I knew that there were musical frequencies, and I knew from my own working with them. But until you, I didn't understand that they were also precessional cycle numbers. Mm. Or like the diameter of the moon, which is 2,160 miles in diameter. Which, of course, means the mile is not an arbitrary unit. It's it's part of the whole hyperdimensional, you know, panoply of resonant frequencies, tonal harmonics, and basically it's what shapes the whole damn universe. And when you said you were surprised that these are, you know, frequencies from outside of time and space, well, life itself in our model is a hyperdimensional projection into 3D reality. So it makes perfect sense that, you know, hyperdimensional water will re-energize hyperdimensional beings drinking water starved of the right frequencies. Yeah, you know, I've been drinking it nonstop now for years and what it's done for my health and others' health because I'm getting reports back now, you know, I can tell you some instances. You know, I don't like to get into the health of it a lot because... That's just a whole nother ball game, you know. I'd like to tell people, well, they're nice energy devices, these devices I make, or they're it's a nice paperweight, you know, whatever you want to do with it. But the truth of the matter is, people that have been using my products to um, energize their water, uh, they're having all these medical issues that they couldn't get rid of through through their whole life, especially some skin related issues such as uh, eczema and psoriasis. Uh, different people that said nothing has cured uh, their conditions. They started drinking 432 water and it's vanished. So I think like you said, you know, when you figure out, well, guess what? We're almost all water, 70 to 90% water, depending Mm. on your age. And where do you think that energy is coming from that your cells are using? You know, Mm -hmm. it comes mostly from water. So all of a sudden when you got a supercharged, uh, uh, source, you know, it's a high octane fuel. Let's say it's kind of like a hyperdimensional battery. Water is a transducer; it's a pass through of the energies from other realms. Hey, let me ask you a dangerous question. And the reason it's dangerous is because you remember lawyers are never supposed to ask a question they don't know the answer to. I don't know the answer to this one, so I'm gonna I'm gonna ask you, Michael. And I'm hoping, I'm praying you have the right answer. Do you have a copy you can play? of the music that you sent to Oumuamua today. Yeah, if your producer, just go to uh No, YouTube. no, no, you I'm have sorry. to do it. You have to do it, oh. or I have to do it. Our producer is off tonight spending uh, incredibly gotcha. valuable time with her family. Thank goodness. Uh, that's wonderful. Well, God bless her, you know. Um, man, I hate to say, I don't know how to do it. I can tell you it's morning star and uh you know what i'm really excited about well, wait a minute can you can you put the uh, web link in the in the skype chat and then yeah. i can bring it up and then i can probably play it from here okay let me see what i can do okay while you're doing that let me segue to uh, david because uh david sarita is with us as i said he and i kind of talk the same language which has a lot of numbers in it and most people when you talk about numbers they go huh what are you talking about? Or they have what's called the Mego effect. My eyes glaze over. Um, but David has a way of making these numbers resonate. You like that pun, David? So let me bring David on. And I want to talk tonight, because we have Marie with us finally, of this astonishing thing that happened in the run-up 
to this Christmas weekend broadcast series to Oumuamua. We decided last Saturday on the 11th um, to send a test transmission to the moon. And David, I want you to pick up here, what did we get in return? Remember, we're using pokey speed of light radio transmission, 186,000 miles per second, which in terms of interstellar travel is nothing. You can't, you know, get to the center of the galaxy. It's going to take you 26,000 years to go from here to there at the speed of light. And nothing we can envision in terms of engineering can go at the speed of light, so it's kind of like you're, you're dead in the water. But we seem to be getting answers that are totally transcendent of the mainstream physics speed of light. So as you were going through the returns, the response that we got, David, tell us what we got that was really mind-boggling from the moon bounce experiments a week or so ago. So when we did the moon bounce, you got to remember we're talking to the moon. So the first, so what I'm using again, we're we're using these handheld radios that are tuned to the same frequency as the transmission. Which, in this case, Jimmy sent the transmission to the moon, which deflected to the Earth in less than three and a half seconds at 144.1 megahertz and 432 megahertz. So Michael was just talking about 432. So on my 432 radio, I'm not only recording the audio of the chirps that both Tesla and Marconi also thought was extraterrestrial chatter because they ruled out Morse code, that it was not Morse code. And we believe we're getting the same thing because it falls under the same description. So the first thing that I got on my 432 radio was they sent me the speed of light in metric. <laughs> I mean, this can't be an accident, right? Like you can like and so what what I'm doing is I can see meter and I'm taking a picture as these frequencies as numbers are jumping all over the meter. Like a like and a my, uh, my, like like a frame grab. Like a frame grab. And it, it's the speed of light to accurate to 99.99%. And the speed of light, as we know it, is not accurate to 99.99% because it changes ever so slightly every time they measure it. So that blew my mind. I said, they sent me the speed <laughs> of light. You have to understand, when you calculate an electromagnetic frequency, you take the speed of light divided by its the wavelength in the same unit of measure. So if I'm using metric for the speed of light, my unit of measure has to be metric for the wavelength. And then you get frequency. So it's a very simple calculation. It, it's not Greek, it's simple. The measurement of the speed of light, 299.792.458 kilometers per second, divided by your wavelength. So that was really key that they sent that. Then all of a sudden, and, and I got screen grabs of these. We, I, I sent everybody in, in our group the speed of light. Okay, for people who think this is easy, did you kind of ballpark how, how what were of this just coming up randomly by coincidence? Well, they're not coming because I, I saw the speed of light three times. And it's like when you're taking Redundant you're taking message. A, yeah, you're taking a picture of a hummingbird and the freaking bird is jumping all over the place and you get one picture and the next shot you miss them. Well, I saw the speed of light because my eyes are really fast. I used to be a professional photographer, and 
And I, I know how tricky it is to capture things that are moving fast. And these numbers are jumping around. And then another number I got was 8069.6. And something told me, divide that by the number that we're, um, that we're transmitting at, which was 144.1, because this number came in on my 144.1 radio. When I divided it by that, I got a number that led us to Stonehenge, right? I got us to, <laughs> I got us to um, um, 28 times 2, which is 56. And there, are, you immediately knew what the answer to that was, didn't you, Richard? You knew what 56 well, was. Well, it, it, like, it was like, oh, my God, you got to be kidding. They give us a speed of light, kind of acknowledging, we know you guys are primitives and slow pokes and you're limited to radio, and we're not, but we're acknowledging that you're sending us information at the speed of light. <clears throat> then the next thing they sent was this calculation that David just described, which resolves to 56. And in connection with the moon, it was like, okay, we're bouncing stuff off the moon. You know, they're saying they're t they we're sending it at the speed of light. Well, the 56 leaped out at me because the only 56 that I could you know, associate was the number of what are called Aubrey holes dug in Stonehenge, which according to Gerald Hawkins back in the 50s, he figured out that Stonehenge was a preeminent sacred site devoted to measuring the motions of the sun and the moon. And it was Fred Hoyle, who was a brilliant uh, astrophysicist of the 1950s, friend of uh, Chandra Rick Ramasinghe, who's been on the show many, many times, an astrobiologist. It was, it was Hoyle who suggested that the ancients moved the, a stone around in the circle over the course of a lunar month, two stones per day and night, marking the day and the night cycle, winding up with 56 as a number, which of course now links our response through the Aubrey holes, the 56 holes, to the lunar cycle, to the most extraordinary, well-known, ancient celestial observatory in our dim, hidden history of planet Earth. And then of course the immediate person that I wanted to call and talk to and have on to talk about all this was none other than Maria Wheatley, who spends a lot of her spare time, does she have spare time? At Stonehenge, <clears throat> and knows more about Stonehenge probably than all of us on this panel put together. So Maria, what do you think? It's truly astonishing, but I'd just like to correct you. Um, the 56 Aubrey holes were not holes. That's what was thought in the 1950s and the 1960s. With re recent archaeology, we know that the 56 holes were the socket holes for 56 blue stones in Stonehenge Phase 1. So long before the Stonehenge that you recognize and everybody does with a lintel stone circle, there was a monument with a henge bank, brilliant white, and 56 blue stones. That's phase one of Stonehenge, the first monument ever built dedicated to the moon. That's so incredible that because, because if you divide that by two, you get 28 for the average number of days in the lunar um, lunar um, calendar, 28 days. So you got days and nights, which is 56 yes. days and nights of the of the, which is your 56. 
But five year, the five-year cycle is very important in the number 56 at Stonehenge. So in five years, you have 12 lunations, and that takes you to the nearest decimal of 5 times 29.5 times 12, which gives 56. So it's really dedicated to the moon. So every five years, we could say, because those blue stones are highly magnetic and aligned to the moon, they relate to these energies coming in. And more than that, that it's not just about what's out there in space that circle which was massive that 56 blue stone circle also was aligned to a circular earth energy pattern that is the harmonic surface pattern of underground water so we have the earth energies resonating to the underground water it's a set beneath an aquifer stonehenge which also relates to the moon itself and when we get the number 56 according to gerald hawkins which uh, Richard mentioned earlier, it's 19 years, 19 years, 18 years equals 56. And that relates to the moon's metonic cycle when it's the year of the high moon. And the year of the high moon is the longest night in the moon's metonic cycle, a bit like the opposite of the longest day, which is the summer solstice. Wow. Oh my God, that is <laughs> mind blowing. So, you know, so hang on, hang, hang on, David, hang on, hang on. So this means, to my way of thinking, we're sending a message to the moon. We get a set of responses that, A, talk about our technology, speed of light, and then they talk about the most celebrated, ancient, sacred monument on the planet that everybody now knows is associated with celestial astronomical observations, specifically the sun and the moon, and they give us a number which, as Maria's just laid out, unfolds into deep, deep understanding in deep human time going back thousands of years of things that even the current generation uh, has no idea about. In other words, whoever we're talking to seems to know the human condition, the human species, our real hidden history like almost nobody contemporaneously does here on earth which to me is an incredible affirmation of what i call the family model of ets in other words we're not talking to aliens we're talking to someone intimately connected with the human race itself they just don't happen to live here anymore it's 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 remarkable what she just said because you're saying Stonehenge one Maria had fifty six blue stones. Yes, yeah, so they weren't Aubrey Hulls. Okay, let so me ask another old. dumb question, David. Hang on, I'm sorry to interrupt. Um, what happened to them? Because back in the fifties and sixties, there were the holes but no stones. So where where did the stones go? That's that's a really good question. Uh, what happened was you had Stonehenge Phase One. Then, 500 years later, according to uh, Orthodox archaeology, the blue stones were uprooted and the sarsens were imported and then the Stonehenge that you recognize was constructed. And there was the blue stones were then made into a stone circle uh, inside of that sarsen ring. So it's about changing the design. Oh, so they, so they moved the same stones but into an inner ring as opposed yes. to out by the uh, by the uh, bank, the artificial horizon. Yes. 
Exactly. They they redesigned Stonehenge 500 years later. Okay, here's another dumb question. Why? <laughs> well, I think, uh, yeah, I mean, that is uh, the million-dollar question. Because I think what they were they were doing, they wanted to change and bring in more different types of stone from the Preseli Mountains uh, in Wales. And then we had the import of the massive sarsen stones. It, 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 and they, again, Those huge, looked... grey, lichen-encrusted yes. monoliths. Uh, well, they, yes, uh, exactly. I mean, they again, they are highly polished i mean you're looking at stonehenge years later so they were highly polished stones and the chalk bank was highly polished as well it had reflective properties as well it, so we were looking into that later so stonehenge was a brilliant dazzling monument back in the day so and can you tell us compared to ancient egypt and the great pyramids dating that Stonehenge and the Druid circles are much older. Is that correct? They're older than Egypt. The phase one of Stonehenge predates uh, Egypt. It goes to 3100 BC, and if not prior to that as well, because carbon dating taken from Stonehenge bluestone socket went back to 7000 BC, one carbon dating. It's just the archaeologists chose the, mm. the earlier, later date, uh, rather. So compared to ancient Egypt, uh, it's, it's much, much older. And the Druids, incidentally, it's a wrong timeline. They are from the Celtic period of 700 BC. So they're much, much later, the Druids. Although oh, you okay. did have, so you're talking about a different era. <laughs> well, this is important, Maria, because when we go to the response from Amuamua, which is going to lead us to the absolute perfect royal cubit, I, I want to ask you when we come back if there was a megalithic cubit or was it just a megalithic yard, as Alexander Thom had has that's stated. Not, that's it not getting ahead of ourselves. A lot of yeah, information, I, I, lots I just of numbers. So excited about where this goes. I understand, David. The, 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 the bottom line is whoever we're talking to seems to know our language. They seem to know our history. They, they seem, seem to know our ancient history know, that we don't even know. Exactly. So who are they? That's so, because this response is instantaneous. We will be answering, hopefully, some of those questions. On the other side of midnight, my name is Richard C. Hoagland. We shall return. With every thought you think Upon the recitation we're about to sing Calling occupants of interplanetary craft Calling occupants of interplanetary most extraordinary craft Calling occupants of interplanetary craft Calling occupants of interplanetary craft
Thanks for listening to this exciting first hour. Now, the second and third hour of the show is available to Club 19.5 members only. Please support the show by subscribing to Club 19.5 and join our very interesting community. To do that, please visit the website, theothersideofmidnight.com, and click on the Join Club 19.5 link in the left-hand column. As a Club 19.5 member, you'll gain access to the rest of this show and all previous 350-plus shows that we have done. Now, recent Club 19.5 member archive recording have the commercials removed, and the sound quality has been enhanced. You'll also receive a dedicated private podcast feed that contains these enhanced show recordings. And you'll be able to download the MP3 files directly from the archive if you prefer. As a Club 19.5 member, you'll also be the first to preview our new videos and reports. We'll be adding exclusive new features to Club 19.5 as we go forward. And boy, have we got some amazing things to tell you about in the coming weeks. So please support the show and don't miss all the exciting new things we have planned. I want to thank all our Club 19.5 members because without your guys' support, this show would not be on the air. Please help us continue growing the show by subscribing to Club 19.5 today. And when I say we really need you, we really need you. Over and out. Mm-hmm.